0: Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. Creative Living Beyond Fear. 2015. Courage. Hidden Treasure. Once upon a time, there was a man named Jack Gilbert who was not related to me, unfortunately for me. Jack Gilbert was a great poet, but if you've never heard of him, don't worry about it, it's not your fault. He never much cared about being known, but I knew about him, and I loved him dearly from a respectful distance, so let me tell you about him. Jack Gilbert was born in Pittsburgh in 1925, and grew up in the midst of that city's smoke noise and industry. He worked in factories and steel mills as a young man. It was called from an early age to write poetry. He answered the call without hesitation. He became a poet the way other men became monks, as a devotional practice, as an act of love, and as a lifelong commitment to the search for grace and transcendence. I think this is probably a very good way to become a poet, or to become anything really, that calls to your heart and brings you to life. Jack could've been famous, but he wasn't into it. He had the talent and the charisma for fame, but he never had the interest. His first collection, published in 1962, won the prestigious Yale Younger Poets Prize, and was nominated for the Pulitzer. What's more, he won over audiences as well as critics, which is not an easy feat for a poet in the modern world. There was something about him that drew people in and kept them captivated. He was handsome, passionate, sexy, and brilliant on stage. He was a magnet for women and an idol for men. If he. he was photographed for Vogue, looking gorgeous and romantic. People were crazy about him. He could have been a rock star. Instead, he disappeared. He didn't want to be distracted by too much commotion. Later in life, he reported that he had found his fame boring. Not because he was Im- immoral or corrupting, but Simply because it was the, ex- because it was exactly the same thing every day. It was he was looking for something richer, more textured, more varied. So he dropped out. He went to live. He went to live in Europe and stayed there for 20 years. He lived for a while in Italy. He lived for a while in Italy. A while in Denmark, where mostly he lived in Shepherd's hut on a mountain mountaintop in Greece. There, he contemplated the eternal mysteries, watched the light change, and wrote his poems in private. He had his love stories, his obstacles, his victories. He was happy. He got by somehow, making a living here and there. He needed a little. He allowed his name to be forgotten. After two decades, Jack Gilbert re- After two decades, Jack Gilbert was the first. After two decades, after two decades, after two decades decades. After two, decades, Jack Gilbert and pap- After two decades, Jack Gilbert resurfaced and published another collection of poems. Again, the little, again, the literary world fell in love with him. Again, he could have been famous. Again, he disappeared, this time for a decade. This would be his pattern always. Isolation, followed by the publication of something sublime, followed by more isolation. He was like a rare orchid, with blooms separated by many years. He never promoted himself in the least. In one of the few interviews he ever gave, Gilbert was asked how he thought this how he thought his detachment from the publishing world had affected his career. He laughed and said, I suppose it's fatal. I suppose it's been fatal. The only reason I ever heard of Jack Gilbert was that, quite late in his life, he returned to America for motives I will never know, took a temporary teaching position in the creative writing department at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. The following year, 2005, it happened that I took exactly the same job. Around the campus, they started jokingly calling the position the Gilbert Chair. I found Jack Gilbert's books in my office, the office that had once been his. It was almost like the room was still warm from his presence. I read his poems and was overcome by their grandeur, and by how much his writing reminded me of Whitman. We must risk the light, he wrote. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of the world of this world. He and I had the same surname. We had held the same job, we had inhabited the same office, we had taught many of the same students, and now I was in love with his words. Naturally enough, I became deeply curious about him. I asked around, who was Jack Gilbert? Students told me he was the most extraordinary man they'd ever encountered. He had seemed not quite of this world. They said he seemed to live in a state of uninterrupted marvel, and he encouraged them to do the same. He didn't—he didn't so much teach them how to write poetry. They said, but why? Because of delight, because of stubborn gladness. He told them, he told them that they must live their most creative lives as a means of fighting back against the ruthless surface, the ruthless furnace of this world. Most of all, though, he asked his students to be brave. Without bravery, he instructed they would never be able to realize the vaulting scope of their own capacities, Without without bravery, they would never know the world as a richly Without bravery, they would never know the world as richly as it longs to be known. Without bravery, their lives without without bravery, their lives would remain small, far smaller than they probably wanted their lives to be. I never met Jack Gilbert myself. Now he is gone. He passed away in twenty twelve. I probably could have made it a personal mission to seek him out and meet him while he was living, but I never really wanted to. Experience has taught me to be careful of meeting my heroes in person. It can be terribly disappointing. Anyway, I quite like the way he lived inside my imagination as a massive and powerful presence, built out out of his poems and the stories I've heard about him. So I decided to know him only that way, through my imagination, and that's where he remains for me to this day. Still alive inside me, completely internalized, almost as though I dreamed him up. But I will never forget what the real Jack Gilbert told somebody else, an actual flesh and blood person, a shy University of Tennessee student. This young woman recounted to me that one afternoon, after his poetry class, Jack had taken her aside. He complimented her work, then asked what she wanted to do with her life. Hesitantly, she admitted that perhaps she wanted to be a writer. He smiled at the girl, he smiled at the the girl. girl, he smiled at the girl, he smiled at the girl, smile at the girl with infinite compassion and ask, Do you have the courage? Do you have the courage to bring forth this work? The treasures that are hidden inside you are hoping you will say yes. Creative living defined. So this, I believe, is the central question upon which all creative living hinges. Do you have the courage to bring forth the treasures that are hidden within you? Look, I don't know what's hidden within you, I have no way of knowing such a thing. You yourself may barely know, although I suspect you've caught glimpses. I don't know your capacities, your aspirations, your longings, your secret talents, but surely something wonderful is sheltered inside of you. I say this with all confidence because I happen to believe we all are, we are all walking repositories of buried treasure. I believe this is one of the oldest and most generous tricks the universe plays on us human beings, both for its own amusement and for ours. The universe buries strange jewels deep within us, deep within us all, and then stands back to see if we can find them. The hunt to uncover those jewels—that's creative living. The courage to go on the hunt, the courage to go on that hunt in the first place—that's what separates a, mun- a mundane existence from a more enchanted one. The often surprising results of that hunt—that's what I call big magic, an amplified existence. When I talk about creative living here, please understand that I am not necessarily talking about pursuing a life that is professionally or exclusively devoted to the arts. I'm not saying that you must become a poet who lives on a mountain top in Greece or that you must be, that you must perform at Carnegie Hall or that you must win the Palm d'or at the Cannes Film Festival. So, if you want to attempt any of these feats, by all means, have it. Have it. it. I love watching people swing for the preachers. No. When I refer to creative living, I'm speaking more broadly. I'm talking about living a life that is driven more strongly by curiosity than by fear. One of the coolest examples of creative living that I've seen in recent years. For instance, came from my friend, Susan, who took up figure skating when she was about 40 years old. To be more precise, she actually already knew how to skate. She 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 had competed in figure skating as a child. And had always loved it. But she quit the sport during adolescence, when it became clear she didn't have quite enough talent to be a champion. Ah, lovely adolescence, when the talented when the talented are officially shunted off from the herd, thus putting the total burden of society's creative dreams on the thin shoulders of a few select souls while condemning everyone else to live a more commonplace, inspiration-free existence. What a system. What a system. For the next quarter of a century, my friend Susan did not skate. Why bother if you can't be the best? Then she turned 40. She was listless. She was restless. She felt drab and heavy. She did a little soul-searching, the way one does in the big birthdays. She asked herself when was the last time she'd felt truly light, joyous, and yes, creative in her own skin. To her shock, she realized that it had been decades since she'd felt that way. In fact, the last time she'd experienced such feelings had been as a teenager back when she was still figure skating. She was appalled to discover that she had denied herself this life-affirming pursuit for so long, and she was curious to see if she still loved it. So she followed her curiosity. She bought a pair of skates, found a ring, hired a coach. She ignored the voice within her that told her she was being self-indulgent and free To do this crazy thing. She tamped down her feelings of extreme self consciousness at being the only middle aged woman on the ice. With all those tiny feathery nine year olds, nine year old girls, she just did it. Three mornings a week, Susan awoke before dawn, and in that groggy hour before her demanding day job began, she skated. And she skated and skated and skated, and yes, she loved it as much as ever. She loved it even more than ever, perhaps, because now, as an adult, she finally had the perspective to appreciate the value of her own joy. Skating made her feel alive and ageless. She stopped feeling like she was nothing more than a consumer. Nothing more than the sum of her daily obligations and duties. She was making something of herself. Making something with herself. It was revolution. A literal a literal revolution. As she spun as she spun to life again on the ice, revolution upon revolution upon revolution. Please note that my friend did not quit her job, did not sell her house, didn't sever all her relationships and move to Toronto, studied seventy hours a week with an exact, with an exacting Olympic level skating coach, and no, this story doesn't end with her winning any championship medals. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to. In fact, this story doesn't end at all because Susan is still. Susan is still figure skating several mornings a week, simply because skating is still the best way for her to unfold a certain beauty and transcendence within her life that she cannot seem to access in any other manner. And she would like to spend as much time as possible in such a state of transcendence while she is still here on earth. That's all. That's what I call creative living. And while the paths and while the paths and outcomes of creative living will vary widely from person to person, I can guarantee you this. A creative life is an amplified life. It's a bigger life, a happier life an expanded life, and a hell of a lot more interesting life. Living in this manner, continually and stubbornly bringing forth the jewels that are hidden within you, is a fine art in and of itself. Because creative living is where big magic will always abide. Scary, scary, scary. Let's talk about courage now. If you already have the courage to bring forth the jewels that are hidden within you, terrific! You're probably already doing really interesting things with your life and you don't need this book. Rock on! But if you don't have the courage, let's try to get you some, because creative Living is a path for the brave. We all know this and we all know that when, create, that when courage dies, Creativity dies with it. We all know this. And we all know that when courage dies, creativity dies with it. We all know that fear is a desolate boneyard where our dreams go to desiccate in the hot sun. In the hot sun. This is common knowledge. Sometimes we just don't know what to do about it. Let me list for you some of the many ways in which you might be afraid to live a more creative life. You're afraid you have no talent. You're afraid you'll be rejected or criticized or ridiculed or misunderstood or, worst of all, ignored. You're afraid. There's no market for your creativity and therefore no point in pursuing it. You're afraid somebody else already did it better. You're afraid everybody else already did it better. You're afraid somebody will steal your ideas. So it's safer to keep them within so it's safer to keep them hidden forever in the dark. You're afraid you won't be taken seriously. You're afraid your work isn't politically, emotionally, or artistically important enough to change anyone's life. You're afraid of your dreams or you're afraid your dreams are embarrassing. You're afraid that someday you look back on your creative endeavors as having been a giant waste of time, effort, and money you're afraid you don't have the right kind of discipline you're afraid you don't have the right kind of workspace or financial freedom or empty hours in which to focus on invention or exploration you're afraid you don't have the right kind of training or degree you're afraid you're too fat i don't know what this has to do with creativity exactly but Experience has taught me that most of us are afraid we're too fat, so let's just put that on the anxiety list, for good measure. You're afraid of being exposed as a hack, or a fool, or a dilettante, or a narcissist. You're afraid of upsetting your family with what you may reveal. You're afraid of what your peers and co-workers will say if you express your personal truth aloud. You're afraid of unleashing. You're afraid of unleashing your unleashing your innermost demons and you mo and you really don't want to encounter your innermost dem- demons. You're afraid your best work is behind you. You're afraid you never had any best work to begin with. You're afraid you neg- you're afraid you neglected your creativity for so long that now never get back. You're afraid you're too old to start. You're afraid you're too young to start. You're afraid because something went well in your life once so obviously nothing can ever go well again. You're afraid because nothing has ever gone well in your life so why bother trying? You're afraid of being a one-hit wonder. You're afraid of being a no-hit wonder. Listen. I don't have all day here, so I'm not going to list I'm not going to keep listing fears. It's a bottomless list, anyhow, and a depressing one. I'll just wrap up I'll just wrap up my summary this way. Scary. 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 Everything is so goddamn scary. Defending defending your weakness. Please understand that the only reason I can speak so authoritatively about fear is that I know it so intimately. I know every inch of fear from head to toe. I've been a frightened person my entire life and I was born terrified. I'm not exaggerating, you can ask anyone in my family and they'll confirm that, yes, I was an exceptionally freaked out child. My earliest memories are fear, as are pretty much all the memories that come after my earliest memories. Growing up, I was afraid. not only of of all the commonly recognized and legitimate childhood dangers the dark, strangers, the deep end of the swimming pool but i was also afraid of extensive extensive list of completely benign things like snow, perfectly nice babysitters, cars, playgrounds, stairs, sesame street, telephone, board games, the grocery, the grocery store, sharp blades of grass, any new situation whatsoever, anything that dared to move, etc., etc., etc. I was a sensitive and easily traumatized creature who would fall into fits of weeping at any disturbance in her force field. My father, exasperated, used to call me "pitiful Pearl. We went to the Delaware shore one summer when I was 8 years old, and the ocean upset me so much that I tried to get my parents to stop all the people on the beach from going into the surf. I, sh- I just would've felt a lot more comfortable if everyone had stayed safely on his or her own towel, quietly reading. Is that too much to ask? If I'd had my way, I would've spent that entire vacation indeed, my entire childhood indoors, snuggled on my mother's lap in low light, preferably with a cool washcloth on my forehead. This is a horrible thing to say, but here goes. I probably would have loved having one of those awful Monchosen syndrome by proxy mothers. You could have colluded with me in pretending that I was externally sick, weak, and dying. I would have totally cooperated with that kind of mother in creating a completely helpless child, given half the chance. But I didn't get the kind of mother, not even close. Instead, I got a mother who wasn't having it. She was, she wasn't having a minute of my drama, which is. Probably the luckiest thing that ever happened to me. My mom grew up on a farm in Minnesota, the proud product, the proud product, of tough Scandinavian immigrants, and she was not about to raise a little candy ass, not on her watch. My mother had a plan for turning around with my fear that was almost comic in its straightforwardness. At every turn, she made me do exactly what I dreaded the most. Scared of the ocean? Get in the ocean. Afraid of the snow? Time to go shovel snow. Can answer the telephone? You are now officially in charge of answering the telephone in this house. Hers was not a sophisticated strategy, but it was consistent. Trust me, I resisted her. I cried and sulked and deliberately failed. I refused to thrive. I lagged behind, limping and trembling. I would do—I would do almost anything to prove that I was accept- I would, that I was emotionally and physically totally fibbled. To which my mom was like, "No, you aren't. You aren't." I spent years pushing back against my mother's unshakable faith in my strength and abilities. Then one day. Somewhere in adolescence, I finally realized that this was a really weird battle for me to be fighting. Defending my weakness? That's seriously the hill I wanted to die on? As the saying goes, Argue for your limitations and you get to keep them. Why would I want to keep my limitations? I didn't as it turned out. I don't want you keeping yours either fear is boring over the years I've often wondered what finally made me stop playing the role of pitiful pearl almost overnight surely there were many factors involved in that evolution the tough mom factor the crowing up factor but most but mostly I think it was just this I finally realized that my fear was boring mind you My fear had always been boring to everybody else but it wasn't until mid-adolescence that it became at last boring even to me my fear became boring to me i believe for the same reason that that fame became boring to jack gilbert because it was the same thing every day around the age of 15 I somehow figured out my fear had no variety to it, no depth, no substance, no texture. I noticed that my fear never changed, never delighted, never offered a surprise twist or an unexpected ending. My fear was a song with the only one note, only one word. Actually and that word was, STOP! My fear never had anything more interesting or subtle to offer than that one emphatic word, repeated at full volume on an endless loop, stop, 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 stop. Which means that my fear always made predictably boring decisions like a choose your own ending book that always had the same ending nothingness I also realized that my fear was boring because it was identical to everyone because it was identical to everyone else's fear I figured out that everyone's song of fear has exactly the same tedious lyric stop 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 true the volume may vary from person to person but the song itself never changes Because all of us humans were equipped with the same basic fear package when we were being knitted in our mother's wombs. And not just humans. If you pass your hand over a petri dish containing a tadpole, the tadpole will flinch beneath your shadow. The tadpole cannot write poetry and it cannot sing and it will never know love or jealousy or triumph. And it has a brain the size of a punctuation mark. But it damn sure knows how to be afraid of the unknown. Well, so do I. So do we all. But there's nothing particularly compelling about that. Do you see what I mean? You don't get any, you don't get any special credit, is what I'm saying, for knowing how to be afraid of the unknown. Fear is deeply ancient instinct. In other words, and an evolutionary one, and an evolutionary vital one. But it ain't especially smart. For the entirety of my young and skittish life, I had fixated upon my fear as if it were the most interesting thing about me. When actually, it was the most mundane. In fact, my fear was probably the only 100% mundane thing about me. I had creativity within me that was original. I had a pers- I had a personality within me that was original. I had dreams and perspectives and aspirations within me that were original. But my fear was not original in the least. My fear wasn't some kind of rare artisanal artisanal object. It was just a mass produced item. Available on the shelves of any generic box store. Box store. And that's the thing I wanted to build my entire identity around? And that's the thing I want to build my entire identity around? The most boring instinct I possessed? The panic reflex of my dumbest inner tadpole? No. The fear you need and the fear you don't need now you probably think i'm going to tell you that you must become fearless in order to live a more creative life but i'm not going to tell you that because i don't happen to believe it's true creativity is a path for the brave, yes but it is not a path for the fearless fearless and it's not and it's important to recognize this and it's important to recognize the distinction Bravery means doing something scary. Fearlessness means not even understanding what the word scary means. If your goal in life is to become fearless, then I believe you're already on the wrong path because the only true, fea- truly fearless people I've ever met were straight-up sociopaths and a few exceptionally reckless three-year-olds, and those aren't good role models for anyone. The truth is, you need your fear. For obvious reasons of basic survival, evolution did well to install a fear reflex within you. Because if you didn't have any fear, you would lead a short crazy stupid life. You would walk into traffic, you would drift off into the, wo- into the woods and be eaten by bears, you would jump into giant waves of the coast of Hawaii despite being a poor swimmer, you would marry a guy who said on the first date, I don't necessarily believe people were designed by nature to be mono- monogamous. So yes, you absolutely do need your fear in order to protect you from actual dangers like the ones I've listed above but you don't but you don't need your fear in the realm of creative expression seriously you don't just because you don't need your fear when it comes to creativity creativity of course doesn't mean your fear won't show up trust me your fear will always show up especially when you're trying to be inventive or innovative your fear, your fear, will always be triggered by your creativity because creativity asks you to enter into realms of uncertain outcome, and fear hates uncertain outcome. Your fear, programmed by evolution to be hyper-vigilant and insanely overprotective, will always assume that any any uncertain outcome is distant is destined to end in a bloody horrible death. Basically, your fear is like a a mall cop who thinks he's a Navy SEAL. He hasn't slept in days. He's all hopped up on a Red Bull and is liable to shoot at his own shadow in an absurd effort to keep everyone safe. Everyone safe. This is all totally natural and human. It is... it's It's absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. It is, however, something that very much needs to be dealt with. The road trip. Here's how I've learned to deal with my fear. I made a decision a long time ago that, I've, that if I want to that if I want creativity in my life and I do, then I will have to make space for fear, too. Plenty of space. I decided that I would need to build an expansive enough interior life that my fear and my creativity could peacefully coexist, since it appeared that they would always be together. In fact, it seems to me that my fear and my creativity are basically conjoined twins, as as evidenced by the fact that creativity cannot take a single step forward, forward without fear Marching right a lot alongside it. Fear and creativity share the womb. Fear and creativity share the womb. They were born at the same time, and they still share via same. And they still share some vital organs. This is why we have to be careful of how we of how we handle our fear. Because I've noticed that when people try to kill off their fear, they often end up inadvertently murdering their creativity in the process. So I don't try to kill off my fear. I don't go to war against it. Instead, I make all that space for it. Heaps of space. Every single day, I'm making space for fear right this moment. I allow my fear. I allow my fear to live and breathe and stretch out its legs comfortably. It seems to me that the less I fight my fear, the less it fights back. If I can relax, fear relaxes too. If I can relax, fear relaxes too. In fact, I cordially invite fear to come along with me everywhere I go. I even have a welcoming speech prepared for FEAR, which I deliver right before embarking up on any new project or big adventure. It goes something like this. Dearest FEAR, Creativity and I are about to go on a road trip together. I understand you'll be joining us because you always do. I acknowledge that you believe you have an important job to do in my life and that you take your job seriously. Apparently, your job is to induce complete panic whenever I'm about to do anything interesting and yeah, I say you are superb at your job. So by all means, keep doing your job, if you feel you must. But I will also be doing my job on this road trip, which is to work hard and stay focused and creativity will be doing its job, which is to remain stimulating and inspi- inspiring. There is plenty of room in this vehicle for all of us, so make yourself at home, but understand this. Creativity and I are the only ones who will be making any decisions along the way. I recognize and respect that you are part of this family and so I will never exclude you from our from our activities, but still. Your suggestions will never be followed. You're allowed to have a seat and you're allowed to have a voice. but You are not allowed to have a vote. You're not allowed to touch the roadmaps. You're not allowed to suggest detours. You're not allowed to fiddle with the temperature. Dude, you're not even allowed to touch the radio. But above all else, my dear old familiar friend You are absolutely forbidden to drive. Then we head off together. Me and creativity and fear. Side by side. Side by side by side forever. Advancing once more into the terrifying but marvelous terrain of unknown outcome. Why it's worth it? It isn't always comfortable or easy. Carrying your fear around you with on your great... An ambitious road trip. I mean, but it's always worth it because if you can't learn to travel comfortably, comfortably alongside your fear, then you'll never be able to go on anywhere interesting or do anything interesting. And that would be a pity because your life is short and rare and amazing and miraculous and you want to do really interesting things and make really interesting things while you're still here. I know that's what you want it. I know that's what you want for yourself because that's what I want for myself too it's what we all it's what we all want and you have treasures hidden within you extraordinary treasures and so do I and so does everyone else and so does everyone around us and bringing those treasures to life takes work and faith and focus and courage and hours of devotion and the clock is ticking and the world is spinning and the world is spinning and we simply do and we simply don't have time anymore to think so small mm-hmm.